here is actually unmute my microphone. Sorry about that. Uh, welcome again to the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint live series. Uh, my name, of course, is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, started the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint uh, really about three, three and a half years ago to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country. Of course, it's about much more than that. It's about restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, uh, corporal punishment, uh, it's about things that are being done to kids, not only in schools, but in other settings. And it's about how we can make a positive change. Uh, in terms of schools, we want to see safer schools for students, teachers, and staff. Uh, we've got a lot of educators. We've got a lot of parents, a lot of self-advocates that are part of our, our audience here. And always welcome the conversation with everyone. Uh, really excited today, as always. Uh, you know, every time we have a, a guest, I'm, I'm really excited to have the guests that we have. We have Dr. Sword Ablon joining us today. Uh, from Think Kids uh, for a really special interview. Uh, as always, of course, you're going to have the opportunity to ask questions during our discussion today. Uh, feel free to ask those at any time, and I'll keep an eye out for the questions. And this session will be recorded. So as always, we record these sessions. We make them available on Facebook, YouTube, and also as an audio podcast. So if you're uh, not able to stay on for the whole conversation today, know you'll be able to jump in later and join us again. So with that, let me go ahead and introduce to you our special guest that we have here today. Uh, we have Stuart Ablon, uh, Dr. Stuart Ablon, who is the founder and director of Think Kids uh, in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, he's an award-winning uh, psychologist. Uh, Dr. Ablon is uh, an associate professor and the Thomas G. Steinberg Endowed Chair in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, also the author of three books, and I've got a couple of those uh, with me here today, uh, Changeable, uh, which was actually handpicked by Malcolm Gladwell. When I saw that, I got really excited. A uh, big fan of Malcolm Gladwell, also Adam Grant, uh, Dan Pink, and Susan Kane for their next big idea club. Uh, the School Discipline Fix, which I've actually been in the midst of reading here uh, recently, uh, and Treating Explosive Kids, the Collaborative Problem-Solving Approach. Uh, Dr. Ablon received his doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of California at Berkeley and completed his training at Massachusetts General and Harvard Medical School. Uh, one of the world's top rated, uh, rated thought leaders and keynote speakers, Dr. Ablon teaches uh, educators, parents, clinicians, managers, and leaders uh, kind of a very different approach to understanding and addressing uh, challenging behaviors of all type um, and all people. Uh, Dr. Ablon's also helped uh, hundreds of organizations throughout the world implement collaborative problem solving. So we are very excited and very fortunate today to have Dr. Ablon joining us. So welcome. Thank you very much, Guy. I really appreciate you having me here and um, thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, I appreciate that. And and you and I had a conversation a, a few months back and uh, really appreciated the opportunity to kind of connect with you and, and learn more about your work. Um, so we'll, we'll dive right in. I've got a lot of questions for you. I do want to encourage our uh, listeners that are listening live. Uh, if you would introduce yourself in the chat, tell us who you are and tell us where you're from. It's always fun. Uh, I was telling Dr. Ablon that we often have people from all over the world. So uh, don't prove me wrong here. Uh, tell me where you're from. I'd like to see some of my New Zealand friends here or anywhere across the United States or elsewhere. Uh, so let's start with some questions. 
Um, and I've, I've got a number of questions for you, but let's let's start um, kind of at the collaborative problem solving approach. So, uh, you know, you were uh, very well known for this collaborative uh, problem solving model. Um, and kind of before we get into other topics, can you tell us a bit about the model itself, uh, maybe the inspiration of the model and uh, kind of the work that you're doing to promote it? Sure. So uh, collaborative problem solving is basically uh, a, an approach that lends a very different way of understanding what challenging behavior is all about. And as a result, um, some pretty different ideas about how to handle challenging behaviors. And I'm glad to say that in the last 10 years or so, we've seen a bunch of progress. So I think that uh, our viewpoint, the mindset that, that we teach in this approach is becoming more mainstream. Um, but, you know, to sort of sum it up, um, really what collaborative problem solving brings to the table is the awareness that when people struggle to manage their behavior, that it's not a lack of will on that person's part, that generally what it is, is a lack of skill. Um, and I don't mean that in any blaming or pejorative way. What I mean is that everybody's trying their best to manage their behavior, regulate their behavior. Uh, the philosophy that we share is we believe people do well if they can. Uh, applied to kids, we believe kids do well if they can. We believe everybody would prefer to be sort of behaving more adaptively in the world if they could. And if they're not, it's just not as simple as they're not trying hard enough. Um, they're probably struggling with a whole bunch of types of skills that help us manage our behavior. And, uh, you know, the reality is there's almost a half a century of research at this point in the neurosciences that shows us that when somebody has a hard time managing their behavior, it's not a lack of will. It, it really is a struggle with the kind of neurocognitive skills that uh, we humans need to use to manage our behavior in difficult situations. Yeah, I mean, and then that's a fantastic point. Um, you know, I, I began this work, um, you know, almost four years ago, and it started really because of a personal experience. Uh, I have a neurodivergent son who was being restrained and secluded in a school in Maryland. Uh, and when it when it came down to it, uh, you know, not only was the school not really following the law in terms of restraining and secluding him, um, they were not really supporting him in a way that was helpful. And, you know, I agree with you. I think that there there's certainly been, uh, you know, a lot of great progress in terms of, of getting people uh, e even more broadly to look at neuroscience and to look at right. some of the advancements. But, you know, as we look across our school systems today, you know, here in, in 2022, uh, there's still a lot of emphasis on behaviorism. So there's a lot of emphasis on uh, models that are really broadly based on reward and consequence. Uh, so very typically, when a kid's having a difficult time, uh, you know, that may lead to a situation where a behavioral assessment is done. Uh, an adult kind of comes up with a theory. They may look at the functions of behavior and say, well, are they seeking attention? Are they trying to avoid something? Right. Uh, and, and then from there, the adult comes up with a um, theory on how to address the behavior. And, right. and the thing missing, of course, from that process is what? It's the, the child. Um, right. and, and very often, those approaches seem to be not working for the kids that really need help the most. Right. Um, so knowing that that's you know, so prevalent in a lot of our schools, um, you know, and, and, and I love the, the point you made that all people do well if they can, right? So, so we, we often say the same, you know, teachers do well if they can. So uh, what do we need to do better? We, we need those right. skills. But how do, we, how do we, you know, even though we're making progress, knowing the prevalence of those approaches, yeah. 
How do we affect that kind of change? Well, well, so, you know, I, I say we're making progress, I think, philosophically, making sort of the shift from realizing that this is not simply a lack of uh, will or desire, uh, but that actually has to do with skills. That shift in mindset from sort of feeling like kids or people do well if they want to, to, to people do well if they can. I think that's where we're seeing progress. But I would agree with you that, you know, uh, school discipline is still really archaic. I mean, it has not changed a ton, um, despite using sort of different language and terminology. As you point out, when kids, you know, exhibit pretty challenging behaviors at schools, we tend to fall right back on pretty conventional approaches. And as you pointed out, I think partially, partially it's because it's sort of it's written into the law. I mean, when right, you, right. It, you know, if you're going to have a functional behavioral assessment done, uh, you know, uh, because the kid's exhibiting pretty high level behavior, most of those, you know, give an educator only one of two choices, which is, is what is the function of that behavior? Is it to, to seek to avoid things or to sort of get things? And we need to have those laws updated with what we know, right. those regulations from neuroscience, because what we know is it's just not as simple as a kid is looking to get things or avoid things. It's that they might struggle with a whole bunch of skills related to problem solving, flexibility, frustration tolerance. Mm -hmm. And the problem with limiting your options to they're trying to get stuff or avoid stuff is that sends you right in the direction of those more punitive interventions right. Right. that you right. mentioned. And right. if we're going to open the door to other interventions, we have to embrace other explanations for what the behavior is all about. And, you know, th this is not sort of, you know, a sort of somebody's viewpoint like mine. I and mean, this is uh, well proven by science at this point that, you know, the notion that kids are behaving poorly just to get things and avoid things that it's been disproven like most mm -hmm. forms of conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. It's been disproven, but now it's time to update, okay, well, what is the, the more accurate way of viewing these behaviors? And as a result, what does that tell us we need to do? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of the, the negative consequences and, uh, you know, in my experience, it, it, and, and I know that you share this as well, it's, it's not only the negative consequences, sometimes it's the positive rewards that are often, you know, offered to kids. So, you know, it becomes a matter of a kid's having a hard time. So we think it's a matter of motivation. So we offer either an incentive or a consequence. And, and I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I fell into that. Uh, trap early on, you know, when when educators would say, well, what kind of things does your child like? What kind of things might we offer as right. rewards? And, and what I learned very quickly was that some of the most difficult days we ever had came around a situation where my son thought he had earned a reward that he did not earn. Right. And, and what I really came to realize was those rewards were not really motivating him. Um, you know, it gets back to what you were saying about kids being able to do well if they can. Yeah, well, and, and look, I got to tell you, many places these days tell me that they only use, quote unquote, positive discipline. Right. And they'll say, you know, we don't do punitive things. We, we don't use consequences. We just use rewards. I got to tell you, that's heavy duty marketing because it's just not you can't do that. Because to your point, I mean, if you offer rewards and some students don't earn those rewards because they lack the skills to be able to regulate their behavior, to earn the rewards, that's a consequence. When other kids get to have good behavior Fridays and different things like that, and right. certain students don't, that's a consequence. So right. rewards and consequences are flip sides of the same coin. You, you sort of can't um, get away from them. 
But yeah, well, you, you, you know, I'm always carried back to Alfie Cohen's work, uh, kind of saying, you know, rewards and consequences, they're really, like you said, the same thing. Uh, and, and you know, I mean, what research seems to indicate is that they're good at one thing and one thing only. And that's what short term compliance, it's not really about helping kids develop the skills or the motivation to, to do well. So this is, a, you know, a point when I work with schools, one of the things I like to, to, to point out to folks, because I think, unfortunately, sometimes people think that um, in our work, we are sort of overly critical of reward and consequence-based approaches. And I like to point out to people, I'm actually not critical of those approaches. I'm critical of us using them for things they were never intended to be used for, and then being surprised when A, they don't work, and B, they make matters worse. Right. Um, because you know um, these things came out of operant psychology. Right. And, uh, you know, they're good at some things, but they're not good at other things. And notably, what are they not good at? Well, nobody ever said that rewards and punishments were good at building relationships, right. building right. skills. Um, they, nobody ever said they were good at helping people stay calm and regulated. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, mm -hmm. whether it's the promise of a reward or the threat of a consequence, both of those things are inherently dysregulating. They, they sort right. of activate our stress response. So. You know, the bottom line is, look, as you mentioned before, educators do well if they can. I don't blame educators for using school disciplinary approaches. It's what they've been told to use. So it, it, we're barking up the wrong clinical tree right. with these right. approaches. And we right. need to teach people approaches that flow from what we now know the problem is in the first place. And the good news is those approaches are out there. They're evidence-based. They work. We just need to get, get them into people's hands. Absolutely. And, and that's why, I, you know, I love the work that you're doing. You know, I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I find myself somewhat just blown away by the fact that a lot of what's happening in a lot of our schools today is, is really based on 1930s and 1950s uh, behaviorism. It's operant conditioning, uh, despite the fact that in the 90s, we had this decade of the brain. We had an explosion of knowledge about, uh, you know, about trauma, about the way the brain works, about neuroscience. And, and, you know, we're still lagging decades behind. And, and like you said, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's the fault of, of people that are, you know, trying to support and help kids. Uh, but wow, we, we really need to do more to get these systems. Um, we do. Know. And, and, you know, when you look at other things in the world, whether you look at sort of medical interventions or other things, you know, it, we're following a similar pattern, which is um, once conventional wisdom gets disproven and people are open their eyes to a different way of thinking, there is a gap. There is a lag uh, between that time and when people's actual interventions begin to flow from the updated information. Mm -hmm, uh, but, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful. Um, I'm hopeful we can get there. I'm seeing progress. And as I mentioned, we, we just got to get things into people's hands. I mean, I remember a guy I was thinking about this in advance of our discussion today. My first job in high school. So this is um, let's see. I'm gonna, uh, more years ago than you care to think about. Give away right? my age here, um, <laughs> but you know, let's just say it was more than thirty years ago, um, more than thirty-five years ago. So my first job, real job, was um, working on an inpatient unit as a milieu counselor, yep. and I had no experience whatsoever. And when I showed up there, um, the first thing they did was they taught me how to perform a restraint, mm -hmm. um, and. I had no idea what I was doing, right? And so I was just thankful that I was being taught something. And sure enough, when a kid had a major meltdown on my first day, I was called into, into the seclusion room where the door was open to, to assist in a hold. And at first I remember thinking, oh, I get to use something I've been taught. Like that feels good. 
And then I'm holding, helping to hold this kid's legs down as he's writhing on the floor mm -hmm. in, you know, so much pain. And I left there. I remember my first day, I had about a half an hour drive back home. And I thought to myself, like, something is wrong here. Right. Like, right. This is not okay. And yet it's what people were taught to do. Mm -hmm. And it made me think, you know, People need something. You can't just tell them not to do stuff. People right, need right. something. We got to give them something else. Um, and again, as I keep saying, you know, there are other things, concrete tools that we can use that are proven. Um, and <laughs> so it's all about information access and then frankly training. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting to me is, is kind of getting into the, uh, you know, kind of the, the brain science and, and trauma is understanding the impacts that, that, you know, these these high level interventions like restraint and seclusion have, you know, understanding that every time a child goes through something like this, that they are further traumatized, that they are more likely to be hypervigilant, that they are more likely to have behaviors. And, you know, also thinking through the adult perspective on that, you know, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that we find is adults that are more adults that use restraint and seclusion more. Uh, are, are more likely to use it the more they do it, meaning that the more they are doing it, the more right. they feel unsafe, the more they feel unsafe, the more likely they are to go to these interventions. And you create these cycles where they really perpetuate when in fact, like you said, there there are other options. And, and I think that the goal is really how do we promote those other options? How do we make people aware of the better things that they can do? Right. Um, but there's often a lot of resistance to that. You know, there's this kind of thought that well, what else do you expect me to do? I mean, what should I do in this kind of situation? But, um, you know, certainly we have, as you mentioned, kind of evidence-based approaches that have shown results in terms yes. of reducing punitive approaches. Yes. No, I mean, look, every time we implement collaborative problem solving, it's one of, you know, our research director tells me, because she's very careful to make sure that, uh, you know, what I uh, suggest about our research findings is entirely accurate. And it's the one thing that we can almost guarantee every place that implements with any level of fidelity, we generally see a 70 to 80 percent reduction in things like restraint and seclusion. And in some cases, we're able to completely eliminate it. So, you know, it, um, it, it, this can be done, but again, it, you know, it takes training, it takes awareness, uh, but if you get the right tools into people's hands, um, they, they can pull it off. Well, and what's really interesting about that is that we often have a tendency uh, as a society, you know, um, to put all the, all the blame and all the responsibility on the child who has the least amount right. of skills, the least amount of experience. And it's all about what the child's gonna do to fix the problem. But you know, as this work demonstrates, it's very often the changes that are made in the culture, in the training, in the adults and their responses that really cause the difference. Well, absolutely. And look, one of the things we gotta be clear about is that, uh, you know, that term of uh, sort of dysregulation I used before. Mm -hmm. uh, dysregulation is contagious. So if you have a kid who's starting to get dysregulated and an adult who's supposed to contend with that, the chances of the adult getting dysregulated right along with the kid are pretty high. And when we adults get dysregulated, we lose access to the smart part of our brain, too. Right. And that's the big challenge, because then all that good information and trainings and things like that can go out the window, which is why. I think more than half the battle when working with kids who struggle to manage their behavior is keeping the adults around them, parents, educators, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. direct care staff, keeping us adults regulated. Because if we are regulated, we have a much better chance of doing what we know is helpful, 
uh, and what can regulate the child. Absolutely. You know, I, I you know, of course, as you say that, I think, and, and I, I know, um, I recall you've, you've worked uh, a bit with Bruce Perry as well. And, you know, Bruce Perry's in my head here, like, you know, talking about emotions being contagions and all of that. And, and it's all of it, right? I mean, I learned that as a parent as well. Uh, and, and it was transformative. It was transformative to me to really process the fact that the way I responded to a situation had a tremendous influence of whether that situation went off the rails or was yeah. something that we could resolve fairly easily. And, you know, it, it's very easy uh, to take things personally. It's very easy to uh, find ourselves becoming dysregulated. But, you know, I think you're, you're right. The more that we can do to, you know, keep ourselves regulated, people sometimes say things like, and, and you'll always see me react to this, but, you know, well, restraint is safe if you know, if you have proper training. And I always kind of say, well, the, the problem here is that anytime you put hands on a kid, the kid is going to respond in such a way that they, they're going to become, they're going to feel unsafe. They're going to have a fight or flight response. Their arms are going to flail. They're going to kick. They're going to try to get away. And when that happens, that educator, that person that it's, you know, potentially performing a restraint, they're going to become dysregulated. And you can't have safety when you have people that aren't, whether it's the kid and the adults, not accessing their prefrontal cortex. That's right. That's right. And uh, look, you know, one of the pieces of good news here is that um, you can regulate another human being very effectively using words. It's so you know the more we learn about the brain too, the more it makes sense because we we learn that the same parts of the brain that are involved in understanding language and processing language are the parts of the brain that are are involved in regulating ourselves. So you know it's pretty amazing. I mean, you can literally change you know the physiology of another human by what you say to them. And, and that's for good and bad. You can completely dysregulate or you can regulate people with your words. And, um, you know, that's why obviously a huge piece of, of training that we do mm -hmm. is about how do you talk to kids? How do right, you communicate right. with them in a way that is calming and regular? Right, right. Yeah. And, and for us as well as adults, you know, knowing that knowing that power, knowing why even the, the five o'clock news finds us getting feeling dysregulated, you know, uh, the words that anyone uses may lead us to feel that way. Absolutely. And uh, I think that's so critical. Well, I want to back up for a second. And, and sure. you know, we talked about, you know, a little uh, kind of a high level about collaborative problem solving. Um, we talked about kind of the traditional approach of behavioral assessments and uh, often leading to rewards and consequences. Uh, can, can you walk me through an example? You know, let, let's say, for instance, that we have you know, a child that's been having behaviors, that's been having a difficult time, uh, that, uh, you know, the behaviors may be, you know, they may be exhibiting, uh, you know, a, a lot of different behaviors. Maybe they're getting frustrated and acting out in a way that's called unsafe. And I think a lot of us uh, on this call can probably relate to that. Um, what would the collaborative problem solving approach look like working with a child? Sure. So, I mean, first of all, you know, first thing we've talked about is that the approach has a philosophy behind it right, a philosophy that we teach to people rooted in science, and that is that people do well if they can, that this is about skill, not will. Uh, but then we teach people how to do a good assessment through this lens, um, how to know what their options are, and then a set of interventions as well. And, you know, one of the first things to talk about is the assessment, because it's going to be sort of, it's a little ironic, because for an approach aimed at trying to reduce challenging behavior, the focus of assessment is not on behavior. So, you know, you mentioned a kid acting out, you know, whether you've got a kid exploding, imploding, anything in between, whatever the flavor of challenging behavior is, that's actually much less important to me. 
because all that's telling me is that some demand that is placed upon the kid has exceeded their capacity given the skills they're able to bring to bear in that moment. So I'm, you know, that's just their way of saying, hey, I can't handle this very effectively. So we don't spend a lot of time assessing behavior. Uh, and this is where you actually do find commonalities with functional uh, approaches. If you're a you know, uh, certified behavioral analyst, you're very good at identifying the so-called triggers, the antecedents, the setting events. Well, we do the same thing in collaborative problem solving because we say whenever there was a challenging behavior, there was some demand, some precipitant that occurred, and we want to know what that is. And what's interesting is people tend to think that those antecedents sort of, um, we often hear people say it could be anything, you know, happens out of the blue. It's just not the case. Um, the antecedents tend to be pretty predictable and reliable. So a good assessment through the lens of collaborative problem solving is identifying what are the types of antecedents that lead to that dysregulation. And then here's the other part of the assessment. And this is, I think, what's missing on most FBAs. Why? What skills is that kid struggling with in the moment that if they were more if they were more skilled at, at utilizing those things, they'd be able to handle that antecedent better. And, you know, this is where we follow the neuroscience, because what do we know? We know the kids who manage have trouble managing their behavior. Yes, as Cheryl's putting in the chat there, have lagging skills. And where do they have lagging skills? Five primary domains, language and communication skills, emotion and self-regulation skills, attention and working memory skills, cognitive flexibility skills, and social thinking skills. Um, so, you know, those are, uh, those are the areas that we look for. Uh, and once we're able to identify, here are the antecedents, um, they're predictable, here are the types of skills that a kid struggles with that make those antecedents antecedents, then you're in a very different place when it comes to knowing what your options are and what the interventions are going to look like. Mm -hmm. And what what might the intervention look like? I mean, can you walk us through a little bit about, you know, um, you know, one of the things, of course, that uh, I love about this kind of approach is that it is collaborative. You are working with a child. And, and so often so many of our programs are about doing things to kids versus, you know, collaborating with them. Uh, what does that look like? So what does it look like to kind of problem solve with the child? Yeah. Well, first of all, a few things. Um, in collaborative problem solving, you know, problem solving with a child is only one of three options that you have in the first place. Because if you identify the antecedent and you know that that's likely to trigger the kid, you've got options. And, and you know, one of those options is to try to make the kid comply with your wishes, which uh, tends to lead to dysregulation. One of those options is trying to problem solve together with them, which is what you're mentioning. But you know, you also have another option, which is to decide to try to remove the expectation in the first place, to decide, you know, this may be less important right now, given the fact that it triggers the kid. And I can't tell you how many, for instance, inpatient units we've worked with where they've been uh, able to remove some expectations temporarily because they're just not that important to pursue during the course of the stay there that have led to dramatic reductions uh, in the need for things like um, re restraint and seclusion. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there, there are multiple options, but the option that, that you're mentioning where you actually engage in collaborative problem solving with the child, uh, that's a, a structured process. And it begins by trying to understand the kid's concern or perspective about the situation. 
which is not something we adults tend to um, sort of do reflexively. Uh, particularly when we're not wild about how the kid is behaving, we tend to run with our perspective, our point of view, our solution, what they need to do. And this process is about slowing down and trying to understand where the kid's coming from. What's hard for them about a situation, what their concern is, what their perspective is, before we share our adult perspective or point of view. And what I like to say to people is, you know, you're only doing collaborative problem solving when you have two sets of concerns on the table, <laughs> kids and the adults. <laughs> um, if you just have the kids perspective on the table, you're not doing collaborative problem solving. If you just have yours, you're not doing collaborative problem solving. <laughs> so it's getting both sets of perspectives on the table and then inviting the kid to problem solve together with you. And very importantly, giving the kid first crack at solutions as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we, we can give some examples, Guy, but let me just, I wanna point out some, those ingredients that I just described, there's three ingredients of this process. Uh, the first ingredient we call the empathy ingredient, where you try to understand the kid's concern or right, perspective. Right. The second is the share ingredient, where you share your perspective. The third is where you're inviting the kid to, to, to collaborate with you, to find a mutually satisfactory solution. Um, those three ingredients are important that they're done in that order. You referenced uh, Dr. Bruce Perry's work earlier. He and I do a lot of uh, teaching together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things he talks about is you got to regulate somebody before right. they can relate to you, before you right. can right. Yeah. I, I'm seeing my, uh, you know, my Bruce Perry brain there. <laughs> yeah. Regulate, relate, reason. Well, right. look what we just described in those three ingredients. The, the empathy ingredients where you regulate. Mm -hmm. Being heard, being empathized with is regulating. Mm -hmm. The second ingredient where you're sharing your concern alongside theirs, um, that's where you're relating. And the mm -hmm. third ingredient, when you say, all right, let's see if we can figure out a solution to this problem now, that's when you're saying, hey, can we reason together? Can I talk to your cortex? Right. Because your cortex might be open for business now that we've regulated each other, we're relating, now we can move up the brain in that third ingredient. And then the hopeful outcome then is that if you're collaborating together, that you come up with a solution that satisfies their concern and your concern, okay. and that you've, you've got a starting point. Now, um, I, I love that you kind of talked about the other plans as well. And, you know, I, you know, my, my reflection is, well, plan A is seldom the, the best choice, but plan C is sometimes uh, a reasonable choice. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that you were talking about that, that kind of stuck out to me um, sometimes we need to review our own expectations. So sometimes we may have an expectation uh, and, and maybe this is not the time or place for that expectation. So, um, you know, even reflecting on the expectation to say, uh, you know, not only, you know, I, I always think about plan C kind of because the, um, it's not that it's not necessarily not important, but it may not be the thing that's critical right now. So, you know, oftentimes kids might have several things that they're having challenges with. And, um, you know, again, you know, I, I always think it's really important to kind of weigh our own expectations and make sure the reason why, because sometimes, sometimes these things are just power struggles. That's right. And, and, and sometimes we have to take a step back and go, you know what, this doesn't need to be an issue. Uh, <laughs> so. and you, can, you can avoid a lot of difficulty like that. And, and right. I think it's right. important. Let, let me clarify a couple of things because you're using uh, language from collaborative problem solving. You're familiar with plan A, plan B and plan right. C, which is what we use as sort of code for your three options. And right. plan A is when, as you said, you choose to sort of impose your will. Plan B is this collaborative problem solving process. And we call it plan C when you decide, as you're saying, guy, to drop your expectation. Right. Now, right. 
I think it's important to, to, to clarify something though, because people's aversion to dropping expectations mm -hmm. is generally that they feel like they are capitulating or mm -hmm. giving in. And we've all been told as parents and educators, et cetera, that, that giving in is like the worst thing you could do because right. it would sort of reinforce the behavior. And I want to point out that use, using what we call plan C is actually not giving in. Okay, giving in is when you try to use plan A, you sort of try to impose your will and you can't pull it off or it begins to get ugly on you and you decide, okay, you throw up your hands and you say, okay, you know, on second thought, forget it. You could call that giving in, but I call that like failed plan A leading to having to bail, whereas plan C is being strategic. Plan C right. is deciding, as you said, I'm not pursuing that right now. And I like to remind us adults that we're actually in charge when we use plan C because we are making the decision. This is not important right now to pursue. Right. And, you know, if you want to use professional jargon, if you do that in a clinical setting, that's called treatment planning. <laughs> if you want to use that in a school, that's called behavior intervention planning. Right. Right. Just to say, you know, you can't work on everything all at once. You got to put some things on the back burner. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, let Absolutely. me give you a very concrete example here. Uh, a school that uh, just wrapped up that I was working with, they had a kid who um, every time in music class up on the risers, he would get pretty dysregulated and he would push and shove other kids. And if they got knocked off the risers, of course, they would get pretty upset and it, the whole thing would spiral out of control. And we had three, you know, we knew this. This was a predictable trigger. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? We have three options. We can try to make him go to music class and not push or shove people. We can try to solve it together with him and figure out what's going on. Or we could decide, you know what, with a few weeks left in school, uh, does he need to be in music class? Because he's not wild about it to begin with. And it's getting ugly every time we do it. And so we may decide, you know what, we're not going to require him to go to music class for now, not forever, mm -hmm. but for now. And mm -hmm. that's not giving in. That's making a strategic decision. Absolutely. So I want to pause for a second and just get some uh, comments that we have coming from people. Uh, and also encourage if you are um, watching live, uh, feel free to put a question in the chat. And uh, it's very easy for me to dominate all the questions because uh, I always have a lot of things I want to ask. But uh, well, and, you, you're absolutely welcome to ask questions in the chat. So please do. But just guy, to share I, I've enjoyed sorry, I've enjoyed uh, scrolling here and seeing uh, some, some folks who I've interacted, folks know about CPS, use CPS, Mickey, who remembers the talk I gave. Actually, I think that was with Bruce Perry in uh, in Austin, Texas a while back, pre-COVID, which was- Yeah, uh, absolutely. We, we, we've got a fantastic community and uh, Mickey's been part of our community for quite some time. Uh, fantastic community of, of people that, uh, you know, probably aware of the work that you're doing from a, a wide range of places here. Uh, I didn't see my New Zealand friends, but, uh, you know, we've got people from all over the country uh that are um you know joining us today uh you know I, I, tracy shared you know the story of my son's life punished by not getting the reward you know and and very often even programs that you know have the best of intention uh you know i think about uh some of you know and again i am not you know i think about programs like pbis which at its heart is a tiered framework but you know very often is full filled with behaviorism approaches and uh things that uh you know how how many times did my son uh get to go to the pbis party or uh you know he didn't have the skills he didn't have the skills to meet the expectations um let's see 
Uh, let's see. And, and Mickey just made a comment that that was what psychiatry regimens told me. The first thing they learn um, is how to place a person in restraint. Uh, they say it makes sense for everyone's safety that you should do that. Uh, yeah. So certainly not an uncommon experience. We've heard that with a lot of uh, you know, a lot of professionals that have kind of started their career in one place and, right. you know, realized. Well, it used to be, you know, believe it or not, people, I, I know you know this, people used to think that restraints, holds, uh, things like that were therapeutic. They actually right. used to believe that they were helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, thankfully that notion was abandoned and people then really said, okay, well, maybe they're not helpful, but they're necessary. And I think what we're seeing now is actually most of the time they're not even necessary. And right. they're harmful. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I shared all your optimism about uh, people moving away from that. But unfortunately, I've had experiences where we often hear people talking about restraint and seclusion as therapeutic. Uh, I was involved about a year ago with uh, efforts in Illinois uh, to pass legislation after a series of articles came out about the use of restraint and seclusion, a series called The Quiet Rooms, and uh, provided testimony a couple of times. There was a non public school in the state that was pushing back very hard on a uh, ban on prone restraint. And one of the, the members of that team, of that school team, wrote a letter to the editor of the Chicago Tribune saying that prone restraint was safe and therapeutic. Now, I almost fell out of my chair and eventually, you know, I kind of got the, got the energy back and I wrote my own letter to the editor kind of disputing that. But, you know, we, we often hear that. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people go, well, seclusion's therapeutic. And, and again, you know, when I, I'm always careful to use the right definitions, because when I'm talking about seclusion, I'm talking about involuntary confinement, somebody alone and, and prevented from leaving. Yeah. I'm not talking about somebody that needs to go to a quiet room on their own accord. Uh, and there's nothing therapeutic about being forced into a room against your will and having the door held shut. Um, so we, we still hear no. some of that, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, no, it is still out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we've made progress, but it's still out there. And, and look, you know, one thing we haven't mentioned yet, Guy, is that the overwhelming percentage of um, kids who are subjected to these punitive and restrictive interventions are kids with trauma histories in the first right. place. Right. Um, and there's also, you know, incredible disproportionality around race, uh, along race lines when it right. comes to punitive interventions as well. So there are just so many reasons um, that we need to work to reduce these things. And again, we can because we know how to if we can get it to people. Yeah. You, you know, it's interesting because, because you're absolutely right. And, and we talk about that a lot that, you know, 80 percent of the restraints, according to federal data, kids with disabilities, 77 percent of the seclusions. I look at that and, and honestly, I see a civil rights issue. Uh, I also see a failure to meet children's needs. So when, whenever I talk to a parent uh, or, uh, you know, even a self-advocate, when I hear about a kid that's being restrained or secluded, what I most commonly really see is a kid that's not having their needs appropriately met. And, and that leading to frustration, that leading to, uh, you know, situations that escalate, that leading to uh, yeah. kind of control and compliance approaches, and, and that eventually leading to things like, um, you know, restraint and seclusion. Yeah. And, and look, I, I think, uh, as we, we've said several times, it's really important to keep in mind that the vast majority of people who are performing things like restraint and seclusion, they prefer to be doing something else if they knew what else to do. Yeah. Um, educators, parents, direct care staff do well if they can. And right. just telling people not to do it, um, if it works, it only works in the short term. To, to be sustainable, you actually need some kind of model, approach, technique, something for people to hold on to to make this desire to not use them actionable. 
Absolutely. You know, and at the Alliance, we do a lot of work around both legislation, but more importantly, education, which is what we're doing here today, right? We're, we're trying to inform people about the other approaches. Because in my mind, uh, while I support legislative change, I'd love to see uh, the Keeping All Students Safe Act passed. That would ban the use of seclusion and prone and supine restraint. It would bring funding into the schools to allow them to bring forward uh, better approaches. But, you know, I had the opportunity to testify on that back in uh, January, I guess it was, uh, to a congressional committee. And I was asked by Congressman Beyer kind of what, what I thought was most critical about it. And it's not so much about the ban to me as it is about, you know, how do we get funding to schools so that they can find the alternatives? You, because if we put a law in place that says you can't do this, unless we provide people with a better thing to do, uh, we could see worse things happening. We could see increased referrals to law enforcement. We could see kids getting put placed in more restrictive environments. So I'm 100% with you. It, it really is about how do we get to people better ways of supporting kids and themselves ultimately. Um, somebody had asked or brought up the, the something about kind of collaborative problem solving and collaborative proactive solutions. And of course, I think I've been um, I think I've done good so far and I don't think I've uh, inter interchanged the titles, but I, I know both programs. So sometimes I'll oh, collaborate problem solving, collaborative proactive solutions. Um, so what, what's the connection there? I know I was recently um, kind of reading uh, your book and you mentioned kind of the the origin uh, what's the connection between those two things? Uh, sure. So uh, uh, collaborative problem solving is the approach that we teach at Think Kids at Massachusetts General Hospital um, in Boston. Um, collaborative and uh, proactive solutions is taught by Dr. Ross Green, who uh, he and I worked together many years ago for many years. And um, uh, we went our separate ways back in, gosh, I think it was uh, 2008 or nine or something like that. Uh, we had been uh, running a program together at Mass General at the time. And um, so, uh, so you know, these are uh, related approaches that um, come from sort of the, the um, same roots, um, mm -hmm. but have sort of grown in, uh, in uh, different ways at this point. And, and at Mass General Hospital, uh, Think Kids, we do, we partner with organizations all around the world, schools, other places to teach them the approach, but also to help uh, help them to implement it. Because I think it's very important to, mm -hmm. that we be clear that training people in an approach usually doesn't stick. Uh, right. uh, what I call spray and pray training um, does not take. And it's actually a big problem in our schools because we have limited professional development time and dollars. And if we sort of use them on spray and pray uh, training, it, it unfortunately uh, doesn't work. So we spend a lot of our time helping people implement um, the approach, but also teaching it to um, to parents um, and all kinds of other folks. Um, okay, well. so so let, let's let's dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. Tell me a little bit more about Think Kids, and you know a little bit more about uh, you know the work that you're doing in terms of uh, training for uh, you know parents and educators. Um, you know, I think that. Um, you know, in my mind, you know, this this kind of approach uh, is beneficial in, in both kind of a, a home setting and a school setting. Right. And even more so when we have some consistency, uh, right. if we have families and parents kind of following the same approaches that our educators right. are following. Wow. What a great uh, world that can be. Right. You got it. Well, it's one I think it's one of the great things about the approach. I mean, it, it started, you know, uh, referencing my work with uh, Dr. Green originally. Um, back way back when we were both at Mass General together, the first study of this was an outpatient treatment study with families. And during that time, then uh, a uh, nurse manager of a local inpatient unit came to us and said, hey, I know this is sort of a parenting approach, but could you use this in a milieu setting? 
Um, and uh, you know, then we started seeing dramatic reductions in restraint and seclusion and other units we're using, and then residential treatment programs, and then schools. And so it's the same language, same philosophy, same process with you know, obviously some tweaks uh, in terms of where you're applying it. But as you're saying, Guy, one of the beautiful things is the more consistency across settings that there is, the more opportunity for uh, practice and skill growth there is. Because, you know, whenever you're talking about building skills, things like flexibility, frustration tolerance, problem solving skills, you're actually talking about changing the brain, literally. I mean, Mm -hmm. to build new skills, you have to build new neuronal pathways in the brain. And and look, we we know these days, basic principles of neuroplasticity, of how you change the brain, um, they tell us that it's all about repetition. So, you know, if the only person who's sort of doing collaborative problem solving is Tuesdays at four in the therapy office, it's not going to take. The people who need to be doing it the most are um, the adult caretakers, parents, educators. Uh, They're the ones who are around the kids enough who uh, can help the kids practice enough to actually build new skills. So it is a real benefit that you can apply this across settings. Mm What might it look like? So, uh, you know, we work um, increasingly, um, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, we want to see a reduction in restraint, seclusion, suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment, all these things that are often being done to kids in the name of behavior. And, you know, we have the opportunity sometimes to uh, work with boards of education or school systems that are looking to move away uh, from these approaches. Can you can you describe to me a little bit about what does it look like if, if think kids were to work with a school yeah. that was trying to reduce their use of restraint or seclusion? Yeah. What would that training look like kind of at a high level? What might you do as part of that? Yeah, sure. Well, first, uh, what we do currently is guided by attempts to do it as well as we possibly can over the last 20 years and sort of learning the hard way. Um, And I think learning the hard way, the lessons um, that are now being demonstrated by this whole burgeoning field of implementation science, which uh, we ought to pay attention to. There's a whole, you know, there's a whole area of scientific inquiry and research that shows us if you want to implement anything in a school or any other kind of organization, what do you need to do? And so, you know, these days when we partner with schools or districts, we try to reflect those best practices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at a high level, what does it look like? You have to have leadership buy-in, otherwise it's not gonna take. Uh, So we provide a lot of consultation to leaders of schools about how they can help move this forward. You also have to have some internal champions. You, You have to sort of create these culture carriers. So we work very hard to create experts within the system early on before we then roll out training more broadly so that there are those champions and those experts internally who can support the, the, uh, the practice. And then, you know, I think a couple other big lessons, um, you can't just train, you have to coach people on a regular basis um, so that they get a lot of feedback about, um, you know, what they're doing. And um, you should use data to, to sort of drive the process and see, is it working? Is it not? Where is it going well? Where is it not? How can you tweak it? And, you know, being a part of a big research hospital, uh, we study everything we do deeply to sort of try to guide those things. And the last thing is um, whenever we partner with schools, we have our eye on how do we create a team of people who are certified in the approach and certified trainers Mm -hmm. so that they can carry the work on. Because, Mm -hmm. again, um, it's just really sad when people put a lot of time and energy into something, get some results, and then you know, priorities shift, leadership changes, 
couple people leave, uh, things like that, and it sort of peters out on you. And so for sustainability purposes, you've got to have those local, again, experts and trainers in-house who can keep it going. Mm -hmm. uh, on that note about data, um, uh, this is something I'd love to follow up with you about, but you know, do you have uh, data um, you know, that's accessible uh, from school systems that have used the model uh, you know, because one of the things that we're always trying to do is, is show people, yeah. uh, you know, here are models. Do you have data that's accessible that can be, uh, you know, because one of the things that we want to do is we want parents to know that there's models out there. When the parents yes. begin to get questions, uh, it's really helpful to be able to provide that. Do you have case absolutely. studies or data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if people go on our website, which is uh, for Think Kids, thinkkids.org, there's a research mm -hmm. page that you can click on and it answers all the questions and shows you where, uh, you know, all the papers that have been published and uh, points you right to the data. And for parents also, you know, their parents can uh, uh, get training right there. I mean, the nice thing is that, uh, you know, one of the uh, few silver linings of the awful pandemic is we had to learn how to teach people remotely. And uh, we learned how to do it very effectively. So we run parent classes and collaborative problem solving for people all over the world. And mm -hmm. uh, people can just join in by Zoom. Um, so parents can learn it very easily as well. What kind of commitment is there in terms of a parent going through the training? Uh, you know, what kind of hours, um, you know, things like that? So our, our parent classes are eight weeks, uh, okay. an, hour, an hour and a half uh, session a week. Uh, and, okay. uh, you know, done alongside other parents. So there's a real sense of community there. Mm -hmm. And by the way, those are our parent classes. But, you know, uh, parents can go on to get certified in collaborative problem solving if they want to do more intensive training and share it with other parents. There's mm -hmm. nothing like... Um, you know, having what I would call a credible messenger pass this information on, which is, you know, parents teaching other parents, teachers mm -hmm. teaching other teachers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. And, and, I, and I think the, the value of that kind of training is really, um, really transformative. I mean, if it, you know, and, and, you know, I would even, you know, one of the things I've always done is I've, I've typically uh, gone through the training that I talk about because I want to understand, you know, what it is. And I think that can be really helpful as well. So, you know, I recently was reading uh, the, uh, the school discipline fix and, uh, you know, I have here uh, changeable as well. And, you know, what was interesting to me about the school discipline fix, um, what one of the things that I got from it was that that book kind of came to be because you had people asking you for lack of a better way to put it, like almost a manual and this, yes. this, is almost like a manual for educators. What can you tell us about that book? No, you're exactly right. Uh, we, I refer to it as our curriculum for schools. Uh, and it's broken down into three parts. And the first two parts are, you know, if you are an individual educator uh, who wants to better support one or more of your students or you're struggling with, you pick up that from the first chapter and it'll walk you through all the basics of the approach from the philosophy to the assessment process to the, what behavior intervention planning looks like uh, to the actual intervention. And then the third part is really for school leaders thinking about if we were to try to you know, systemically implement this in our school. If mm -hmm. uh, we want to say, you know, this is how we want to handle discipline in our school or district, or, you know, this is uh, one of our social emotional learning uh, based curricula that we want everybody trained in. How would you go about thinking about that systemic implementation? Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of last chunk. And, you know, if, uh, you, if we have folks here who are interested in, in, 
uh, just starting to get engaged a little bit with this, a great thing to do is to uh, run a book study, you know, have a, mm-hmm. a book group with your peers in the school. And there's a, uh, a, a, dis- a book group discussion guide that you can download right off our website for free. And, and it'll, you know, have guiding questions for uh, each chapter and things like that. And we've worked with a lot of schools that have just begun to create some momentum uh, on their own in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and maybe we'll look at doing one through the Alliance. We've done a couple of book studies in the past, and uh, it's always a great opportunity to, you know, get people to, uh, uh, you know, kind of discover some new things. What I, what I also liked about the, the book is, of course, change is hard, right? Ch- change is difficult. And, and in my mind, I think the culture change is one of the biggest changes that needs to happen. And, you know, I often talk to educators that kind of feel overwhelmed or, or overwhelmed or even stuck. They're in a school that uh, is primarily following a very punitive culture. They want to change. Uh, they're not going to get the training in that they, they need. Uh, they feel somewhat unsupported. But, you know, I mean, a book like this gives somebody the opportunity to uh, really, you know, kind of begin this in their own classroom. You know, uh, sometimes we don't mean to need to make the total system change at once. Making a change in a classroom can really be a big thing. And, and this can really be a guidebook for doing that, right? That It's a great point. I'm so glad you're making it, Guy, because there's so much of our conversations focused on sort of larger scale societal change, right, systemic right. change. Uh, but you can make just an enormous difference and literally change the developmental trajectory of a kid's life with one adult intervening in a very different way. And, you know, right. we know this from the resilience literature, that it's the one commonality in, in kids who've demonstrated remarkable resilience under very difficult circumstances is they point to that one adult. And oftentimes it's actually a fleeting relationship, but that one adult who saw them through a different lens, mm-hmm. um, who built a helping relationship with them. And so you're so right. You know, one student at a time, one kid at a time, one educator at a time, right. uh, pick up the book. Uh, there are a bunch of free resources right on our website. You can, you know, watch an hour and a half, uh, you, you know, recorded training to to begin to get engaged. Uh, there's a lot you can do on your own, even if you don't have systemic support. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate that point because it can be difficult. But, you know, I'm a big believer that wherever we can make a change, it's progress. So, you know, if you're able to make a change in a classroom, uh, that's that's so many kids that are going to have a better experience. If you can make it in the whole school, fantastic. That's more. If you can make it at a district level or state level, that's all great. But anywhere we can make a difference is a really positive thing. And, you know, again, you know, if you're a, a motivated, um, you know, educator that has been looking for a better approach, you know, you've really got kind of a, a guidebook here that says, Here's what it would look like. Here's what you could do. And sometimes we see, not always, but sometimes we see that educator, then uh, people begin to notice and they can become kind of thought leaders in their school and might be able to bring forward a program. Like That's exactly, I was going to say the same thing, Guy. I think about where some of our work has really spread. And mm-hmm. I remember uh, actually the first uh, hospital unit in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, that implemented our approach and, and eliminated restraint and seclusion. And they had um, programs that were sending them kids and they would send them a kid who they'd been restraining on a daily basis. And the kid was ready to be discharged in a few days. And they said, well, how could that possibly be? We're restraining him daily. And they said, well, we haven't had a restraint you know, the, the whole time he's been here. And they said, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're trying this different approach. And they started actually hosting like uh, brown bag lunch groups that were mm-hmm. open to the community if you want to learn about this. And it created this massive 
widespread implementation where collaborative problem solving is all throughout the state of Oregon at this point. So you literally show a little success in one place. And then when people are curious, e be eager to engage them and share what you've been doing. And it's amazing. I mean, you can you can really light a fire. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to get a couple questions, and and I know I promised to have you out of here by four thirty, uh, so I'll, I'll keep uh, keep my uh, promise there. But a couple of questions here, real quick, uh, and let me just kind of look through to see what we have here. Um, all right. So this was a question about how do we get CPS uh, in our preschools? Um, have you have you worked with preschools? And yeah. uh, okay, can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit how you know? I, I mean, I, I would think that even. Um, you know, I, I would think that things may work in a very similar way in terms of, uh, you know, whether it be one person getting training or, or an entire you know, system getting training. What's your experience been? Well, so first of all, you know, the earlier, the better. Right. Because if you're thinking about this as a struggle with skill, not will. And, you know, if you're talking about lagging skills, well, early on in school, that developmental lag is going to be small relative to, you know, if we don't get to this till high school. So it's sort of ironic because a lot of high schools come to us because, you know, big kids, big problems. They've got a lot of issues that are pressing. And I wish more preschools came to us because you can intervene more effectively earlier on and close that developmental gap. Um, but we do work with some preschools. And the reality is, just as you said, it's it's the same process. Um, it's just the nice thing, I'll be really honest with everybody here, is in preschool, kids are still really little and cute. And as a result, adults are able to summon more empathy for them, by and large, um, when they're exhibiting challenging behavior. So we actually find we get traction very easily in preschools if we get access to, uh, to preschool teachers to train them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, you know, again, I, I think so much of the shift needs to happen in the uh, the caregivers and the uh, educators in terms of, uh, you know, I mean, again, you know, we think about a very young child. And, and if we look at the data, the most often restrained and secluded kids are five, six, seven, eight years old. Uh, these are kids that often don't have the developmental capacity to meet the demands that are placed on them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we see a lot of, uh, power struggles that result in things like restraint seclusion. But, you know, if you begin to make that shift, even the f philosophical shift, I mean, I'm a big believer that just making that philosophical shift, you could cut in half your, your restraints and seclusions. If you think about it through that. We lens. have data, we have data, um, to support that view. We actually have an empirical me measure of mindset that measures where people are from, on sort of the continuum from kids do well if they want to, we just got to make them want to, to kids do well if they can. And what we see is when we can shift people along that continuum, even if they're not practicing the rest of the right. approach with high fidelity, we see impacts. And one of the impacts we see is reduction in things like restraint and seclusion. So I need to get that data because I, I very often make that claim with no data behind it. So. <laughs> I'll be following up with you on that. Um, you know, uh, Cheryl mentions a lot of trauma in preschools. And, and you know, again, you know, you know, we are seeing uh, there are a lot of instances where very young kids are being restrained, secluded. Uh, and of course, it's really interesting what we see in the data is that if you're looking at five, six, seven year olds, more likely to be restrained and secluded by the time they get to middle school, less likely. By the time they get to high school, even less likely. Uh, I've always had a theory, again, a theory without data, but the the theory is that uh, children that are very small are easier to control. And when you have a control and compliance kind of mindset, uh, it's easier to pick up a 50 pound child and restrain them. Absolutely. Um, yeah. 
Um, well, listen, we are just about at the end of our time here, and I could ask you questions for probably another couple of hours. Um, a lot of really nice comments here in the uh, the chat. I uh, do want to see if you have any final comments here um, before we we let you go, or any final well, uh, uh, First of all, thank you again for having me, and uh, thanks, folks, for, for showing up and for all the engaged comments and questions. Um, you know, I, I guess the only thing I, I'd probably want to emphasize as we end here is, um, you know, as, as we talked about, it, it's all about regulation, right? And how we respond to kids who are beginning to get dysregulated. And I think we need to recognize that one of the most powerful human regulators we have is empathy. And empathy is a skill that can be taught. And if you can teach concrete skills to empathize, you can help people regulate other humans. And I've seen this across so many of the toughest places that we've worked. Uh, empathy is an incredibly powerful regulator and one of the most important tools as we think about this work um, that, uh, that we're talking about today. Absolutely. Could, couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we have a lot of great uh, thank yous here. I, I know I said I was done with the questions, but I, I had a good one here that said, uh, how do we get funding to help classrooms be pilot programs? Um, and and I, I don't know if you have any programs or any recommendations. Uh, we, we were able to get funding at one point to help do a pilot program, and, and maybe we can work with uh, Think Kids at some point. But uh, are there any programs out there or are there scholarships available for parents or um so, so first of all, I wish I knew the answer to that question okay. as well, which is what we are constantly trying to figure out, which is where can we uh, get funding to be able to continue this work and to lower the, the barriers to access for it. And, um, you know, we are sometimes uh, successful doing that. For instance, um, we've been able to provide uh, free training to educators, parents, clinicians of color uh, in the last couple of years across our entire training continuum. Um, so, you know, we are we're constantly looking for ways that um, uh, we can fund these things, but uh, always eager for suggestions if uh, folks have other ideas of people that we could align with. Because, you know, I keep saying it's all about just getting it out there. And collaborative problem solving is one of, of the evidence based approaches. There are others as well. We just got to get it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to, to my, uh, you know, my feelings on this and, and, you know, are at the end of the day, I don't care what else you're doing. I mean, there's a lot of great approaches, you know, the neurosequential model for education, uh, you know, the collaborative problem solving, collaborative proactive solutions, and Mona Della Hook has some fantastic work, but but there are options and, and, and any of those is going to get us in a better place. Listen, thank you so much for making the time. Uh, I'll, I'll certainly be following up with you on a couple other things as well. Uh, appreciate uh, the work that you're doing and uh, the way that you've been spending your career uh, making a positive difference. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for the kind words. Thank you for your work. And, and I recognize a number of folks who've joined us who I know they're out uh, doing this good work as well. So, you know, uh, we got to do it together uh, as a community. So um, thank you all. Thanks for having me. It's been fun to be a part of this conversation. And I, I do hope we have the chance to, uh, to collaborate in the future. So Absolutely. You. Well, thank you so much. And, and I will let you go. Uh, but I've got a couple of final announcements here uh, for those that are still on with us. I uh, just wanted to let you know that, uh, as always, we've got another event coming up here uh, in two weeks. And in two weeks, we're actually going to be talking about uh, this is going to be a great presentation. We're going to be talking to one of our allies in New Zealand uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, we're going to be talking about the neurosequential model in education. And uh, we're going to have Linda Knight-DeBlois, uh, probably 
did badly on the last name there. I apologize, Linda. Uh, sharing her experience with the neurosequential model. So again, uh, other things that we can be doing to better support kids, better support teachers, and make a positive difference. So as always, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. Uh, again, this will be available on YouTube, Facebook, and as an audio podcast. Uh, please be sure to uh, you know follow us on social media as well. So thank you all, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.